Hey y'all, welcome to Best Virginia, the podcast where we talk about the fascinating history, culture, and folklore of the wild and wonderful state of West Virginia. You got shot, you got stabbed, you lost everything that you had. There ain't no time to wonder why, or to hang your head and cry. Welcome back to Best Virginia, where today I have Mr. Bruce Sackman here with me. Um, Mr. Sackman was the special agent in charge for the U.S. Department of Veterans Services, or Veterans Affairs, rather, Office of Inspector General, Criminal Investigations Division, Northeast Field Office. That's a mouthful. Um, he spent 32 years in this position before he retired in 2005. Is that right, Bruce? That's absolutely right. Today, Bruce has agreed to talk to us about medical serial killers, which everyone loves to learn about, and hopefully he can educate us some. Specifically, uh, we have some uh, ties to West Virginia. Uh, West Virginia was in Mr. Sackman's jurisdiction while he was investigating these crimes. So, uh, Bruce, do you care to share a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, welcome to all my uh, friends in the beautiful state of West Virginia. Um, most people probably don't realize that just about every federal agency has an office of inspector general. And those offices are usually kind of split in half. There's an office of audit, and that office of audit does, like the name implies, audits. And then there's an office of investigation, and that's where I came in. So I was responsible for all major criminal investigations involving the VA hospital system from West Virginia to Maine, right? And um, I had a tremendous inventory of cases throughout that area. I mean, in hospitals, and this is not unique to the VA by any means, but in hospitals, we've had cases involving theft of narcotics. We've had bribery of public officials. We've had um, contract fraud, procurement fraud, sort of a whole smorgasbord of cases to pick and choose from because hospitals, whether they be in West Virginia or New York City, I mean, they're like small cities. And just think of everything that they procure from the most complex scientific equipment down to diapers and everything in between. So there's a lot of opportunity for fraud and for thefts. 
And that was basically my inventory until sometime in the 1990s when I got a phone call that sort of changed my life. I got a phone call from the uh, chief of psychiatry at the VA hospital in Northport, Long Island. And she said, uh, you know, Bruce, you're not going to believe this, but we have a doctor working here who actually spent time in prison for poisoning his co-workers. And now he's working here as a physician at a VA hospital treating our veterans. I, I actually couldn't believe it. <laughs> I said, you mean to tell me that this guy spent time in jail for poisoning his co-workers, passed the government background investigation and is now working at a VA medical center? And the answer to that was yes. And that's what started me in this sort of bizarre journey um, investigating and helping prosecute doctors and nurses who murder their patients. And when I say murder their patients, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm not talking about a Kevorkian who's trying to end suffering and maybe working with the patient. I'm talking about out and out murder. And of course, unfortunately, you know, in, in West Virginia, you had last year the case of Rita Mays. You know, Rita Mays was a nursing assistant. She wasn't actually a nurse. And she was convicted of murdering seven patients with insulin. And she's not the only one throughout the world to use insulin, though. Insulin is one of the more common murder weapons that we have seen over the years. And there's certainly nothing unique about West Virginia or the West Virginia VA that um, is different than any other, than most other hospitals around the world. Because I've worked with police as far as Germany and Italy and throughout the United States, investigating these cases of doctors and nurses who murder their patients. So let's talk a little bit about my first case that I had um, out on Long Island. And this was a fellow by the name of Michael Swango. When Michael Swango was in medical school, his fellow students referred to him as double O Swango licensed to kill because even in medical school, they suspected that he was actually murdering patients, but they couldn't prove it. And these cases are very, very difficult to prove. Very difficult to prove. Why? Because people in the hospital, because they're very sick and they have a lot wrong with them. And many of the illnesses that they have could actually contribute to their deaths. I remember the first time I looked at a VA medical record of, of a, a patient and it was like this thick. And I said, my God, I didn't know you could be alive and have this much wrong with you. And now I have to prove that he was murdered because it's so easy to argue that the person expired from one or more of their natural disease processes. And this is often the response, whether it be, uh, in West Virginia, or whether it be in New York, or whether it be anywhere, these cases are extraordinarily difficult to prove. And what happened, and I know what happened in West Virginia, you know, the politicians get involved and they start screaming and yelling and they want, they want it solved. Well, everybody wants it solved, but I could tell you, I don't know of one case 
that took less than a year or maybe two years to actually resolve because this is what happens. Almost every case starts like this. It seems like every time this nurse is on duty, the death rate goes up. The nurse takes a week or two vacation, the death rate goes down. Does that mean the nurse is a serial killer? Of course not, but it's, it's a start. You know, it raises some suspicion. Hey, you know what? Maybe this nurse has the most complex cases. Maybe this nurse was assigned the sickest patients and that's why they died. Maybe there's some legitimate reason as to why they died. But the interesting thing about these patients when we look at them is that these weren't patients that were expected to expire when they did. And that's a big difference. You know, if you ever had a, a loved one in the hospital that you knew the days were numbered, I mean, you knew the, you know, the family knows, the staff knows, death is not a shocking surprise to you. But in these cases, these people sometimes were actually improving only to get a visit from this one particular nurse or doctor and then die unexpectedly. Natural death, you, you could describe it like this. It's like shutting off a fan and the blaze just gradually slow down and slow down and stop. But these people expire, it's like shutting off a light bulb you're bright one minute and dark the next. And that is a tremendous, tremendous red flag. But you know what? Nobody wants to believe that a medical professional is intentionally murdering patients. Look, and you know, I should probably preface these remarks, any further remark by saying the overwhelming majority of healthcare providers, whether it be West Virginia or anywhere in the world, are honest, hardworking, dedicated people. And the last hospital that I worked in, I mean, they were performing miracles every day. So who wants to believe that in a location like a hospital, in a profession like doctors and nurses who have taken an oath, right? Either the Hippocratic oath or nurses take this Florence Nightingale oath, have taken an oath to save lives is intentionally taking lives. It's very, very hard for the staff to believe this. Sometimes they don't believe it until the person is actually convicted at trial. Up until that time, they refuse to believe it. They say, you know, I've seen this nurse save lives. I've seen this nurse do wonderful things. I can't believe that that nurse would intentionally take a life. And I can understand, I can understand how but that's what makes medical serial killers, whether they be in West Virginia or throughout the world, so successful and have so many murders behind them. Some have so many murders, they can't even remember how many murders they have. I work with, with the German police on a case of a nurse. We suspect he killed 300 patients. He admitted, admitted to killing 100 patients. Bodies had to be exhumed in three different countries, okay? Could you imagine how long this takes? I mean, just think about it. It's just incredible. And then the brave, so how do we find out about these cases? It's usually not through management. It's usually through the brave and honest doctors and nurses who suspect something and report it to us. 
usually after they report it to management who kind of poo-poos it, you know? I mean, management will say, if you go to them and say, you know, every time this uh, nurse is on duty, this nurse Bruce is on duty, the death rate goes up. Nurse Bruce takes a vacation, the death rate goes down. And management's gonna say something like this, well, have you actually seen this nurse kill anybody or harm anybody? Well, I haven't actually seen it. Well, don't you think that maybe there's some legitimate reason as to why this is happening? Uh, yeah, but I, I, I don't really think there is a legitimate reason for that. And then management say, you know, I'll tell you what we're gonna do. This is what we're gonna do. We're going to appoint a board of our very best doctors and nurses all employees of the same hospital, by the way. And uh, they're gonna look into some of these cases and we'll get back to you. And then after a while, they get back to the uh, whistleblower and they say, you know, we put together this, this blue, blue ribbon panel of our employees here and they looked at the files and once in a while, they even did, we even did an autopsy and we looked at the death certificates and we made the determination that all of these patients expired as a result of their natural disease processes. Thank you very much and go away. And you know, if a nurse doesn't go away and if a nurse or a doctor goes to the police, that's when all hell usually breaks out. Because what happens then is that an organization like my own, you know, the VAOIG, comes in and starts asking a lot of questions and we don't take everything for granted. But imagine if it's a local police department, a local police department that has no experience doing these cases, all right? Look, most cops, myself included, don't become cops because we're good in chemistry and biology, okay? So we're very dependent on the medical profession to tell us what's going on. Not only that, Many cops don't even understand that HIPAA law, you know, that Health Insurance, Pol uh, Health Insurance uh, Accountability Act, and they're not sure whether they're, um, they're supposed to get a subpoena, a court order, what documents they could get, what documents they can't get. And they're very intimidated by the science and the law. So if they meet an official from the hospital and the hospital says, well, um, Thank you very much, officer, for your concern. I want you to know that we put together a committee, we looked at this, and we made a determination that all these patients expired as a direct result of their natural disease processes. Now, how many police departments are gonna continue to pursue the case after that? In fairness to them, just about none. And I can tell you, these investigations are incredibly expensive. I mean, at the federal level, we had plenty of money. I mean, we were writing checks for trillions of dollars every day, it seems here. But the local police department, they don't have the resources for this. They have a perfect reason just to close these cases out and move on to something that's gonna be much easier for them to investigate. And I don't say that really to be critical of them because I, I understand. They don't really have the training, the expertise, or the money to pursue this. You know, in this one case on Long Island we had, the VA had to go to a private lab to do the toxicology. That lab work cost us close to a million dollars. 
how many police departments could drop a million dollars on lab work? Just about none, I would say. All right? So that's what makes medical serial killers so successful. And this woman in West Virginia, Rita Mays, you know, she used insulin. And insulin has been used by other medical serial killers throughout the world. There's one in Canada, a, favorite, a famous story about a nurse in Canada who used this. But my hat goes off to the VAOIG and the FBI for doing that investigation because the thing with insulin, if you don't test for insulin really quickly, it will disappear and you will not find it, okay? So for, to their credit, and I know they spent a lot of money on toxicology here, they were able to show that these people were injected uh, with insulin, that she actually uh, murdered these patients. And it resulted in that West Virginia VA going through a very intense review by the Inspector General to make sure something like this never, ever happens again. In fact, even her background investigation, quite frankly, she probably should have never even been hired by the VA. Now, this doctor on Long Island, interestingly, this Dr. Swango, um, he killed people all over the world, not just at the VA. When, so what happened was that after medical school, he gets an internship at Ohio State University, kills a, uh, a young gymnast there who got in a car accident with another student by the name of Cynthia McGee, but he doesn't get charged with that. The student who hit her with his car he gets charged with vehicular homicide, but he didn't kill Cynthia Swangle. Well, that's when he uh, leaves and he becomes an EMT and he actually poisons his coworkers uh, by sprinkling arsenic on their donuts in their iced tea. And he spends three years in jail, comes out and becomes a doctor again. What? <laughs> Is that really possible in the United States of America? Well, it happened. It really did. He's very clever, very clever. He uh, forged all kinds of documentation. He said his civil rights were restored by the governor. People didn't really do the right background investigations. And that's how he got back. And to make a long story short, he actually uh, poisoned his fiance with arsenic. And then when he winds up at the VA on... Uh, on Long Island, and I interview him. What a handsome, charming guy. Looked like a movie star. You know, uh, like he just came right off the golf course. I mean, the guy was smooth as could be until we started asking some pointed questions, and then he wouldn't answer anymore. Next thing you know, he leaves the United States. He goes to Africa. When he's in Africa, he kills women and children and pregnant. But he has to come back to the United States to renew his passport. And that's when we arrested him, but not for murder because we didn't have any evidence that he murdered anybody. We actually arrested him for lying to the federal government on his job application. And he got three years in jail and that gave us a window of opportunity to do these investigations. And let me tell you something, they are very, very intense, very intense. 
And one person alone cannot do this. I don't care if you're the reincarnation of Sherlock Holmes, you cannot do this case yourself. You need to assemble a team of people, whether they, they had a team in West Virginia or we had a team throughout the world. And these teams consist of one, a toxicologist to do the toxicology, a forensic pathologist, um, and we usually use this wonderful profession called forensic nurses. Nurses who are trained in both nursing science and forensics, and they were phenomenal. And then doctors who were experts on chart review to make a determination that this, they can't seem to find any reason why the patient expired when the patient did. All right. And uh, the next step is to exhume bodies. And that's what happened in West Virginia. You know, the FBI and the VA, they, they, they had to knock on the doors of the families. And they had to say, you know, excuse me, ma'am, but we have reason to believe that your dad's uh, death at the VA may be of a suspicious nature. Can we have your permission to exhume his body? Imagine getting a visit like that. That's a life-altering experience, right? Absolutely. And that's what we had to do. And, we, and they had to do it in West Virginia, and they had to exhume the bodies. Sometimes, you know, the family would actually want to be there and watch. Other times, they wouldn't. And so we had to exhume bodies. So this is such a long, time-sensitive exercise that's very, very expensive. But Swango who eventually pled guilty, he killed about 60 people throughout the world. And there have been nurses, I don't even know what the average number is. I would guess maybe about somewhere between 30 and 50 murders a piece. And every once in a while, you read about it in the newspaper, there was one recently in Texas that came out. Um, and I had one in, in Massachusetts, a nurse who killed about 30 people. Uh, right after Swangle, right after Swangle. So these cases are ongoing, certainly not unique to West Virginia. But I remember from my inventory in West Virginia going back years, I remember I had a, a number of uh, oxycodone overdoses. I remember it used to go by that terrible uh, name, Hillbilly Heroin, and we had a number of veterans that uh, OD'd from that. And there was a lot of shenanigans, a lot of shenanigans with the oxycodone. I hope things are better now. You know, I haven't looked at it since, since I retired, but um, it's, it's a real problem. And now we have a whole new situation with the pandemic, all right? And again, the nurses and doctors are doing they're doing God's work. I mean, they're saving lives. They're working 24-7. And what happens is that hospitals now uh, have to rely more on traveling nurses. Nurses that travel from all over the world, actually. And they go to the hospitals and they work in that hospital on a temporary basis. Sometimes they work in the emergency room. Sometimes they work in the ICUs. And again, most of them are the salt of the earth people, but we had, we had some trouble with some of these traveling nurses. I mean, some of them were drug-seeking nurses. 
They just wanted to steal narcotics for themselves, all right? Their background investigations were very, very iffy. And, and so this, this has me kind of concerned now during the pandemic. Not only do we have all these traveling people that we don't really do such good background investigations on, but you know, during the COVID environment, and I think it's still going on in some locations, the families couldn't go in the hospital. Remember, only the patients could go. In. Right. So if the patient is by him or herself and there's no family member to watch over the patient, that to me gives an opportunity for some, some particular issues, some real particular issues. So this is what I've dedicated myself to, you know, I authored a book, I co-authored a book about it called Behind the Murder Curtain. And I, in that book, we, we list some red flags that people could look for if they suspect something like this. But again, it takes a certain amount of courage. And I know the nurses and doctors have it, a certain amount of courage to come forth with your suspicions. Before COVID, when I used to make presentations in person, inevitably, inevitably, after the presentation, Somebody would come to me and they say, you know, Bruce, there was this one doctor, there was this one nurse that we kind of sort of suspected something of, but we never said anything because they was, we were so hospital, we were so happy that they moved on to another hospital and they weren't working. And this is another thing that enables medical serial killers. There's a famous case of a nurse in Pennsylvania, New Jersey named Cullen. He went to about nine different hospitals. When hospital A suspected something, they never said anything to hospital B, they never said anything to hospital C, and this is why he was able to kill about 60 people until he finally got caught. Now in Germany, in Germany, they're doing something unique. In Germany, for the first time anywhere in the world, they have actually criminally charged these managers who suspected something, but never said anything with aiding and abetting the murders. Now, none of them have been convicted yet because it's still ongoing, but I'm very anxious to see, and I hope they get some conviction because we want to send the word out that if you suspect something, boy, you better report it and you better say something, or you yourself could be held criminally responsible. Absolutely. It's like that with lots of things already. Um, so why not murder, right? I mean, you know, all around the world, if you, we're taught from a young age, if you see something going on that's not quite right, then you should report it to whoever you need to, to make sure something gets done about it. Um, it you spoke about a lot of things there that, um, you know, does bring up a lot of red flags and a lot of opportunities. You, you mentioned the word opportunity. Uh, for some of these things to happen. And it's unfortunate, but there are plenty of opportunities for things like this to happen. Uh, so you mentioned some red flags that people might be able to uh, notice to kind of prevent some of these things from continuing to go on. Uh, do you care to share some of those with us? Oh, no, I, I, absolutely. And in the book, I list 26 of them. Wow. But like I say, the cases usually start when every time this nurse of duty or doctors on duty, the death rate goes up. The nurse or doctor takes two weeks off, the death rate goes down. In fact, there was a case in Missouri where that was going on and the management said, you know what, 
let's assign another nurse to work with this nurse that we suspect. So when the two nurses were working together, the death rate went down. But when that second nurse had to take some time off or, you know, take a few days off, what happened? The death rate went back up again. So that's the way most of these cases actually start. The second thing is, who are these people that have expired? Were they expected to expire when they did? Or was their death a real surprise to management? I'll tell you a story. Um, in in um, Massachusetts, nurse Kristen Gilbert, who was convicted of murdering a number of veterans, she said to her manager, and this is actually in the trial transcript, this was a case that went to trial for six months, every day for six months it was on wow. trial. And she said to her boss, if this patient over here, Kenneth Cutting, if he should expire, well, like around six o'clock tonight, can I go home early? And the manager said, well, we don't expect him to uh, expire. I guess if he does, you could, but I mean, we don't expect that. And guess what happened at 6 p.m.? He expired. So what happens is that some of these people are very, it's amazing. They could actually sort of predict a death will occur when nobody else suspects a death. Another thing that we find out is that many of these people, they actually exhibit something called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And what that is, is that um, they will intentionally put a patient into a code, a cardiac event. So they can press the alarm and show off in front of their coworkers what an outstanding hero they are in a code trying to save lives, all right? This one nurse, Kristen Gilbert, the doctors used to say, you know, if I ever coded, I would want Kristen Gilbert there. She takes charge. She starts barking orders at the young interns who were scared out of their mind. She's incredible. Well, of course, she caused the code to begin with. So some of them, certainly not all, some of them actually exhibit this Munchausen syndrome for many of them, it's just an issue of power and control because many times growing up, they didn't have any power control in their lives. And now all of a sudden, they have power and control. You know, I'm often asked, do you think people um, intentionally choose the medical profession uh, because they want to kill people? Um, in my experience, I don't think so. All right. Although I could tell you, you know, some people say, well, you know, he became a psychologist because he wants to cure himself. Or some people will say, well, you know, he's a sexual pervert, but he he joined the clergy because he thought that would actually cure him. So the question comes up, well, if people have this thing about power and control of other people, would they intentionally go into the medical profession? There may be a few. There may be a few because power and control. You see, what happens is sometimes people will start off just being superb medical professionals, and then sometimes they get involved in drugs. Sometimes they have other problems in their life that manifest them to start doing this. All right. So it's clearly not one size fits all. all right. Clearly not one size fits all, but 
The Munchausen syndrome by proxy, that I have seen myself a number of cases throughout the world. So that's certainly something that, you know, people, people need to be aware of. Um, and there's a, the, I could go on and on from, with many more. Yeah, and I could let you. <laughs> um, I don't remember if we've, uh, if I mentioned this before, if you knew this, but I'm a psychologist and a couple of the things you said kind of stuck out to me and uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy is, you know, it is a real, very real thing. Um, a kind of, kind of a pop culture um, example would be uh, the series, the act on Hulu. Uh, if you've ever, if you're familiar with that, um, it, it was a real case. Um, I cannot think about the, uh, the lady's name right off the top of my head, but she was, um, if I'm not mistaken, just released uh, for murdering her mother um, who inflicted a lot of these things. Um, and uh, much like what you're saying, they did move from town to town. Once people would start to be suspicious of, of what was happening, um, they would. That's very interesting. The VA once had this patient and they referred to him as Major Munchausen. Now, he didn't harm anybody else. He intentionally harmed himself. And what he would do is he would research what particular research is going on at a VA hospital involving, you know, what ailments. And he would study that ailment so he would know what all the symptoms were, all right? Then he would check himself into the VA hospital where they're studying this one particular ailment. And the doctors are looking for patients like this. And they would go, Eureka, this guy has all the symptoms that we're looking for. But then after a while, they'd realize that this guy is faking it. So he'd move on to the next VA hospital, or next VA hospital, next VA hospital. Right. You know, the Munchausen syndrome by proxy, I guess they also call it now fact factitious disorder. Yes. Um, it's very common about mothers that will sometime intentionally harm a child and bring a child into the hospital to show the staff what a caring parent they are and how concerned they are when in fact they actually cause the problem. Right. And you know, with, with Nurse Gilbert in Massachusetts, not only was a Munchausen syndrome by proxy, but it was something else. And on rare occasion, we've seen this too. You see, every time a code was called, her boyfriend, who happened to be a VA police officer, would respond to the code as well. Mm. And they were actually like grab ass going on during the code. So they're working on this patient and she would sometimes straddle the patient and her dress would go up and her garter belt would show out. And they turned this almost into a sexual experience. Mm. I mean, there were two female, female, female nurses. I forgot what city they were in the United States. It was the same thing, same thing with two, them. So again, it's not one size fits all, but it's usually all about power and control. And they could not care about the victims. What happens to the victims means nothing to them. They're only interested in what excitement they could get from not only the murder, but many times what they would like to do is call up the victim's family and describe to the victim's family in some gruesome detail about dad's last 15 minutes on earth. And this was their second bite of the apple. The mm -hmm. first bite was the actual murder. 
but they wanted additional excitement. So they would actually call the family, how gruesome this is, right? Call the family and go into great detail how dad suffered during the last minutes of his life. It's terrible. Terrible. That's even, you know, I've, I've done a lot of reading and research um, about serial killers just in general, just because it's very interesting to me to understand how people, how people develop the paths that they go down. And a lot of times there are a lot of factors that start out in most of the time, almost, almost entirely in childhood. That's where it begins and then develops throughout their life. And it's just the, the way the stars line up for certain people. And one of the things that you mentioned was, yeah, like kind of like reliving um, have the second bite of the apple. Um, and a lot of famous serial killer, even outside of the medical community, uh, those cases are like that as well. Um, like, was it the Black Swan um, or um, the Black Dahlia, where they would, uh, the letters to the police um, and kind of the cat and mouse game that goes on sometimes of you know the, it becomes about the thrill and and the power of being able to evade and be smarter and uh be more clever than than those pursuing them and it it is a little it is a little bit different i imagine being you know in an institution it has to you know it probably does present itself as a challenge um being in a hospital in an institution with everything documented um, constant supervision of, you know, everyone's, you're working together with other nurses and doctors, and it's not like a night stalker situation where you're tracking people and breaking into their homes and things like that. There are people all around you, um, and these are intelligent individuals. You know, that's assuming that all the systems are working the way they should be. Or you're right. All the controls are working the way. In the case in, in your state, West Virginia, you know, Rita May, um, the IG came in and they wrote this rather scathing report how things weren't working. And that's what enabled her to put the grabus on, uh, you know, these injections, which she should have never even been remotely close to. Mm. So we hope that everything works. I mean, there's a lot of tracking going on of uh, narcotics. They have all these computerized systems and they monitor everything. But now in a crash cart, when there's an emergency, you know, they just grab things. They really don't have any choice. And um, some drugs like insulin are not usually locked away the way they should be, you know, because it's not a narcotic and it's, it's used pretty commonly. And um, that's what enabled reader actually to to get away with this but um she's not unique she's not unique by, by any shades of the imagination the important thing is for the overwhelming majority of uh, the honest doctors and nurses to say something to come forward sometimes it's not so easy there's a famous case in texas of two nurses who suspected a doctor of harming patients. And they were in a place uh, all the way in remote oil basin in Texas. Um, and it's very hard to find doctors and nurses to work there. In fact, they had to go all the way to the Philippines, sometimes even Korea to find doctors and nurses to work there. It's just a tough 
So these two nurses who happened to be the entire compliance department, they went to the management and they said, we think this doctor is harming patients. And the management said, now how hard it is to find doctors here in this part of Texas. Why we have to go all the way to the Philippines, et cetera, et cetera. So you know what? Um, thanks for the info, but go back to your office and be quiet. We're lucky we have a doctor. And these two nurses said, well, what the hell do we do now? We went to management and they poo-pooed us. So one nurse says, I have an idea. Well, let's send an anonymous letter to the Texas State Medical Board about this doctor, okay? an anonymous letter. Well, the doctor gets wind of it and boy, is he pissed off. So he calls one of his patients who happens to be the local sheriff. And he says, a sheriff, I think these nurses are intentionally trying to harm my reputation and I'd like your help. And the sheriff says, don't worry, doc, I'm on the case. And he gets a search warrant for their hospital computers and he discovers that they were the ones who authored the anonymous letter to the state, has them arrested and charged with misuse of official information, which is a felony. The nurses get fired, they lose their jobs, the whole thing. Uh, it goes to trial. The jury's out for about 20 minutes and they come back and they say, are you kidding me? These nurses deserve a medal for what they did, not to be criminally prosecuted. And they won their case and they got their money. But you know what? What kind of message does that send out to other whistleblowers out there? They say, hey, you hear about those two nurses there in uh, Texas? Did you hear what happened to them? You sure you want to come forward with this? Maybe you just better keep your mouth shut to do your job. And this is a real problem throughout the world, not just in uh, West Virginia or the United States. I mean, throughout the world, this is, is a real problem that we're trying to overcome. Now, because of this case in New Jersey, um, I think now in 38 states, they've made it easier for one hospital to report their suspicions of patient abuse to another hospital. But it's not true in, in every state and certainly not true throughout the world. But still, people don't wanna come forward. But I, as more and more of these cases get publicized on TV and books and the media, I think hopefully people will be more inclined to, to report these issues. Uh, hopefully you're right. I believe um, another popular, <clears throat> excuse me, podcast, uh, Doctor Death, which was developed into a television show. Um, uh, they investigated uh, Christopher Dunch, yes. and uh, being able to uh, for one hospital to report things to another that was a um, an important an important factor in why he was able to continue doing some of the things he was for a while. Um, because there was some uh, red tape that people started to get caught up in when they were d uh, disclosing records from one hospital to another, if I'm not mistaken. And that was why he was able to move from, uh, if I'm not mistaken, to a third uh, location where he was able to continue some harming people uh, for longer than he should have after an investigation had begun. You know, many years ago, there was a famous case in New Jersey about a doctor who wasn't killing his own patients, he was murdering another doctor's patients so people wouldn't go to that other doctor. Wow. 
and that was a big story and it was covered in the news. And that hospital changed its name three times and eventually they had to go out of business. So management will say, remember that story in New Jersey when they had that doctor killing patients? Remember what happened there? That hospital had to go out of business. Everybody lost their job. So are you sure you want to come forward and, and talk about this? I mean, do you want to lose your job? And let me ask you another question there, Miss Nurse Whistleblower. Um, is your background so perfect? If we drug tested you right now, are we going to find drugs in your system? I mean, are all your licenses up to snuff? Are you so perfect? I'm just asking. I'm just asking because if you make these allegations, you yourself kind of, you know, sort of under investigation yourself. So how many people are going to want to continue after that? In the nurse Kristen Gilbert case, these nurses who came forward, what incredible courage they were. And at the trial, they had to admit to drug abuse. They had to admit to sometimes stealing drugs. They had to admit to all kinds of things when they were talking about Kristen Gilbert, you know, just to show the jury that they were now being honest. How many people have the courage to do that? And you know something interesting? After Kristen Gilbert was found guilty and got three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole, do you think these nurses returned to the hospital as heroes? Just the opposite. They're, they were ostracized. They said, you see what went? what you did to us by calling the IG and getting her prosecuted. Now, when people go by our hospital, they don't say, oh, look at that wonderful VA hospital where they saved all these lives. They say, that VA hospital, that's where the serial killer worked. You don't want to go there. You ruined it for us. You ruined it for everybody who worked here by calling the IG. That's right. what happens. And... <clears throat> I remember I've I've worked at a couple of hospitals and a couple of different facilities um, in different uh, capacities. And from some of my experience, I remember if a nurse or a uh, or a technician or of some sort would, you know, go to management about something that they saw that wasn't going quite the way it was supposed to or maybe a little suspicious. Instead of like you're saying, instead of like, oh, that you did such a good job with pointing this out or bringing making us aware for this aware of this what ended up happening was the other staff would be like oh you got to watch out for john smith because he'll he'll run and tell at any little time you mess up or something and so it does it does persuade some people to just keep their mouth shut or not report what they're seeing because they don't want to you know they don't want to become more involved than they want they don't want to make more noise than they need to or draw this attention, but it is very courageous for the, those who speak up and, you know, ultimately do the right thing uh, and save lives and prevent further damage from being done. So I, I believe you're very, you're very right in saying that. Um, one thing that, you know, we've gone over warning signs uh, that people can kind of pick up on with staff. Is there anything specific that you would say to um, family members of potential victims? Yeah, and you know what I would say? Look, if you're so inclined to do wrong, are you going to do wrong to a patient that the family is there all the time, 
that they have an advocate? Or are you going to try to do something to a patient that never gets any visitors, that's always alone by himself? So I tell family members, you have to be an ad, a polite and respectful advocate for your family member who's in the hospital, all right? You have to politely and respectfully ask questions, take notes, you know, ask, don't, don't be shy because what happens is many times is that even our big tough guy, when he goes in the hospital, all of a sudden becomes meek and mild because he's not feeling well. He doesn't ask any questions. He lets the staff do whatever they want to do and, and hopes for the best. And that enables people to sometimes do something wrong. So if you have somebody in the hospital, as much as you possibly can to quietly and respectfully take notes, ask questions, there's a high probability that that bad employee is going to leave your family alone. All right. They're going to leave you alone because I could tell you, and this is some of the sad things about the VA, they had a number of older patients who hardly ever got visitors. It seemed like the families just kind of forgot about them, you know. What easy victims. And you know what? Many of them actually died. And this is another red flag. They actually died like around 3 a.m. They kind of call it the graveyard shift in the hospital um, because there's really no supervision. It's just maybe a nurse and a nurse's aide. And, uh, and if there's no family visits and they're alone, um, you could see the opportunity is there. The opportunity is there. So, um, that's when I tell the families, try to be a polite, respectful advocate. Um, that's my best advice to people. I think that's very good um, because families and patients know the most about themselves. Uh, and I always encourage even my patients, whenever I am working with people, I always tell them, if you don't think that I'm doing the right thing, or if you think that maybe I'm taking us down a rabbit hole or not quite getting what you're saying, please speak up and let me know because otherwise I'm not helping you the best that I can. So if you, and I tell them to do the same with their other doctors to take notes. I've worked with uh, several people who have, um, who have medical problems and they're trying to figure out what exactly is going on with them or, you know, or whatever it may be, but they often don't feel, uh, they don't feel comfortable speaking up to doctors or questioning doctors or um, other providers because it, you know, there is this amount of trust that we have to place in our med our healthcare providers of any kind uh, because oh, yeah, they absolutely. have to trust. If, if everything, um, yeah, if we didn't, if we didn't trust, then no one would get what they needed um, or be in a position to. Uh, but also you do have to be um, involved and, and an advocate for yourself and for your family members. And I think that's extremely important. Right. All polite and respectful. Right. There's, there's been more than one serial killer who has taken patients out who just ring that buzzer too much and becoming really annoying. That's not what I'm advocating at all. Right. And I think, you know, the difference, uh, I think everyone would benefit from 
from this conversation, but one of the main things or one of the things I always try to incorporate whenever I work with people is assertiveness training. Um, there's a big difference between assertiveness and aggressive uh, aggression. Uh, and a lot of people get those confused with one another and being assertive is voicing what you need in a way that the other person can hear. If you're being aggressive or being um, facetious or annoying, things like that, then people are less likely to hear what you're saying, um, especially even when it becomes more emotional in certain situations. Uh, like if you are aggressive or yelling or things like that, no one listens to the words you're saying anymore. They're only listening and responding to your volume and your tone. Um, so the words you're saying don't don't get heard or, or acknowledged or respected. So approaching in a respectful manner, um, like you said, quietly, respectfully, that's much more likely to be heard and respected than exactly. you know, than exactly. otherwise. So yeah, I think that is fantastic advice. And I would give that advice to anyone in any circumstance uh, to practice those skills. Um, is there anything, I know you mentioned your book earlier. Um, you also, if I'm not mistaken, you worked on another book as well, correct? Yeah, well, I actually have a, another book. It's called The Art of Investigation. And what it is, it's a collection of some fabulous stories by some uh, terrific investigators throughout the world. Uh, and it, it talks about the skill set that they had and the particular skills they use to uh, conduct these investigations. And there's some incredible investigations. There's a, there's a serial killer. There's a person that was wrongfully convicted and spent 25 years in jail. I mean, cases of, those mag of that magnitude and they're all in that book. It's called The Art of Investigation. Wow. I, I was reading about that a little bit as I was preparing for this episode. And I, it, it sound, it's very interesting. I'm going to have to check that out for sure. And I would recommend other people to do that as well. Um, is there anything else specific you wanted to share about some of your work? No, I would just say, look, you know, I have a website. It's the same uh, name as the book. Um, the... Um, BehindTheMurderCurtain.com, and you know, I always like hearing from people. I like when people put a, a little review of the book on either Amazon or Goodreads or something like that, because, like you say, that's how I learn. I, I, I learn from the feedback that I, I get from people, and it's interesting because throughout the, you know, I get emails sometimes from the furthest corners of the world about people who have either been victims or felt like they're, they're victims of um, medical serial killers or doctors who intentionally, and that's the word, in, intentionally harmed them. Because look, medical errors is, I think, the third leading cause of death in the United States. Right. But we're not calling about medical errors. Right? <clears throat> we're talking about intentional murder. And that is very, very rare. And sometimes when there's uh, a, a, mis a medical misadventure, we'll call it, or a medical error, that doesn't necessarily mean it was intentional. Right. You know, I mean, sometimes it gets a little fuzzy, like it was with Dr. Dench there, you know. I mean, it was a really question whether he was intentionally harming people or not there for a while, or was he just incompetent? You know, the people that I I've run into, like, like Rita Mays in West Virginia, they were intentionally murdering people. 
And, um, you know, it, it's interesting. There was this one serial killer. Um, his name is Donald Harvey. Donald Harvey killed people uh, both in the VA and outside of the VA. And he says something interesting. He says, after I didn't get caught uh, murdering the first 15 people, excuse me, yeah, the first 15 people, and nobody even questioned me, I actually started to believe that I was ordained by the Lord himself to do this. It's crazy, but it's not so crazy because if you kill 15 people and nobody even questions you, Jordan, they don't even question you, maybe you start to believe <laughs> that there's something, you know, maybe you start to believe this is what I was meant to do, what God wanted me to do, as crazy as it sounds. You know, as crazy as and and this is such a difference really between the medical serial killers and your traditional serial killers. They kill so many people before somebody even raises the slightest suspicion. And that's what enables them to kill so many people. The number one, by the way, the number one medical serial killer of all times is Dr. Harold Shipman in England. Dr. Harold Shipman killed 300 patients, um, <clears throat> most of them elderly, most of them with morphine or something called diamorphine. And, uh, and he made house calls. And the way he got caught is at the end, he started to change uh, the wills of these patients that he murdered to make himself the beneficiary. And one thing led, led to the next, but he is the undisputed, undefeated champion of medical serial killers with 300. And just to show you how difficult these cases are, he is the only physician in the history of England, going back to the Norman conquest, who was ever convicted of intentionally murdering his patients ever. Wow. Okay, that tells you something, doesn't it? <clears throat> Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And also, that three hundred is a a very large number. Um, and yes. it's it is unfortunate how you know just how overlooked a lot of those things do become because of the nature of because whenever you are a medical professional, you are dealing with sick people who are in vulnerable spots, and a lot of people. Uh, you know, a lot of those people, like you said, some of them do take turns out of nowhere that are that are kind of suspicious. But a lot of a lot of the victims, it's not so out of it's out of question because of like, yeah, they were I thought they were doing better. But there are also plenty of times where people do take turns for the worse. And it is part of their disease or part of their illness. And it's just imagine if you're working in hospice where all patients are suspected to die anyway. Right. So if a patient dies in hospice, well, they were expected to die. Right. But there have been cases of um, killers in hospice for two reasons. One, they were uh, stealing all their personal information, uh, their, their credit cards, their belongings and all that, and they killed them. And the second one, believe it or not, is also, and I hate to pick on Texas, but there was a famous case in, in Texas where um, people were put into hospice and they were put in too early. And what happens when you're put in too early 
the insurance companies and the government will stop reimbursement because you accepted them into hospice too early. So the manager says, uh, you see this patient over here, Jordan Mitchell? Uh, we're not going to get reimbursed for him if he lives past Monday. So you know what's going to happen to Jordan Mitchell before Monday? He's gone. And that's a real uh -huh. case. That's wow. a real wow. case of that. So there, sometimes there's even a financial motive. It's, it's all across the board. Right. All across all right. the board. Um, one more thing. The earlier I was I mentioned the uh, the case that was made into a popular Hulu series. Uh, that was the case of Gypsy Rose Blanchard. Um, I just remembered that I couldn't remember the name earlier, but I, I remembered that name. Um, it's a very interesting case. I, I know the there was a lot of scrutiny about the television show about how accurate uh, versus dramatized it was. Um, but I think the fact remains that this individual was. Uh, made to believe she was made much sicker and made to believe she was much sicker than she actually was. And it was for the Terrible. nefarious gains of her mother. Um, yes. Because there's of, a case about, uh, there, there's a show on uh, HLN um, called, uh, it, it's called Dr. Death. And it's a two hour show about Michael Swango. They had a series on medical serial killers on, on all serial killers, actually, on HLN, CNN. And if you find Dr. Death, you could watch all about my, it's fascinating, all about Michael Swango. I'm on there, of course, and you'll, you'll, you'll see it. It's a two-hour show. It's in two parts, but it's it's worth checking out. It's, 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 it's really done. Really done. Wow. That's really cool. Um, I think you answered all the questions I had to ask. Uh, without me even asking most of them. <laughs> um, I, you have a lot of very interesting stories and I, I'll definitely be checking out the books and, um, and the Dr. Death show as well uh, to learn more about your work because it's, it is fascinating, but it's also very um, educational and just very beneficial uh, to stop these people and to develop safeguards to prevent some of these things from happening more more often. So uh, thank you for your work with that and all your You're contributions. Welcome. You're very welcome. Um, any uh, parting words for us or, or anything else that you'd like to? No, thank you very much. I enjoyed having the opportunity to, to tell these stories. I hope people will do their own research on these cases and, uh, and read a, a number of books that are out there as, as well as mine and go to my website and uh, anything that I could do to help. You know, people could always email me just directly through uh, the website. Wow. Well, thanks for that. And thank you for agreeing to do this interview with, with me and appearing on the show. Uh, very interesting stuff. I appreciate it so much. Very welcome. This has been another episode of Best Virginia Podcast, created and hosted by me, Jordan Mitchell, featuring special guest agent Bruce Sackman and featuring music, by 18 strings. As always, thanks for listening. Stay wild, stay weird, and stay wonderful.